Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Happy New Year and welcome to Season 3 of the Space 3D Podcast. In this season's first interview, co-hosts Eleanor O'Rangers and Tom Hill had the opportunity to speak with veteran journalist and science and technology writer George Leopold. George holds a Bachelor of Science degree in history from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and a Master's in Journalism from Columbia University. George has written extensively about U.S. manned spaceflight, including the Apollo and Space Shuttle programs. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Scientist, and a variety of other science and technology publications. He is also the author of Calculated Risk, The Life and Supersonic Times of Gus Grissom, which was published in hardback by Purdue University Press in 2016. A paperback edition was released in 2019. In this multi-episode interview, we'll discuss astronaut Gus Grissom, who never had the chance to publish his memoirs. Killed along with his crew in a launch pad fire on January 27, 1967, Grissom also lost his chance to walk on the moon and return to describe his journey. In part one of our interview with George Leopold, Eleanor and Tom will begin to explore George's journalism background and how his interest in U.S. spaceflight history led him to telling Grissom's life and career. Well, welcome everyone to Space 3D. This is one of your co-hosts, Eleanor Rangers, and I'm here this evening with one of our other co-hosts, Tom Hill. Say hello, Tom. Hello, Tom. (laughs) And we are actually kicking off Season 3, believe it or not, of Space 3D. We would like to introduce our first interview for this third season, uh, George Leopold. So good evening, George. Hi, Eleanor. Hi, Tom. Good to be with you. All right. Thank you. So a veteran journalist and science and technology writer, George Leopold holds a Bachelor of Science degree in history from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and a Master's in Journalism from Columbia University. George has written extensively about U.S. manned spaceflight, including the Apollo and Space Shuttle programs. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Scientist, and a variety of other science and technology publications. Tonight, we're going to focus on a biography George has written on Gus Grissom, entitled Calculated Risk, The Life and Supersonic Times of Gus Grissom, which was published in 2016. We'll get into more details uh, in just a moment. So again, welcome to Space 3D, George. Good to be with you guys. And you're kicking off season three. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to kick kick things off with a question. When I was reviewing your bio and realized, yes, you're originally from Wisconsin, the obvious question that this raises immediately is, why did you decide to write a biography about a Hoosier when you could have been writing about Deke Slayton? Uh-huh. Well, all, a lot of these guys were from from the Midwest, Ed White and McDivitt and Gus and uh, the others. I guess the reason was that, uh, you know, there was this big gap in the historical record uh, about what Gus had done, his accomplishments, everything that he had done to get us to the moon. It just struck me that uh, somebody needed to tell his story in 
uh, in the context of the history of human space flight. He never got a chance to, uh, outside of one book about Gemini, to, to tell his story. So I wanted to do that. And, you know, I was uh, attracted to him because he was arguably from, from the Midwest, I guess, Indiana, Southern Indiana, sort of qualifies for the Midwest. But, uh, you know, that's that's part of, I think that's part of the uh, attraction of Apollo is uh, these guys from the middle of the country, these Big Ten schools who uh, who got us to the moon. So, a very, you know, very compelling character. And uh, I wanted to tell his story. When I visited uh, Wabakaneta back in April, there was a sort of a, t- a wall, I think, in there of, uh, or maybe it was a conversation some of us were having about how many astronauts have actually come from just Ohio alone. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and of course, Purdue, my publisher. Purdue. <laughs> exactly. So I, I've always been curious about how is it that so many people that were involved in the early manned program really came from from the heartland i mean so many of even like the mission control people were were all from and many of them first generation uh kids that went to college yeah right and that was you know sort of a a a big theme in in my biography is these guys from you know guesses from the middle of nowhere southern indiana and he gets into world war ii too late to to do anything other than fly a desk but these guys all qualify for the GI Bill, and they go to these great engineering schools, Purdue and Michigan and Wisconsin, and they get engineering degrees. And, you know, some of them are, are, are flyers already in World War II, like Deke. And then, you know, Gus uh, gets approached one day at the Union at in West Lafayette and says, you know, do you guys want to be pilots? And Gus says, hell Yes. <laughs> and so he reenlists, and a couple of you know later, about a year later, he's in Korea flying jets in the first uh, air war with uh, jet-powered aircraft. So talk about uh, the right place at the right time. But I I argue that the GI Bill was one of the greatest things this country ever did. These guys all benefited. They had the good sense to take advantage of it. And uh, you know, my dad was an Air Force veteran and. He didn't take advantage of the GI Bill. He went back to Appleton, Wisconsin, and had six kids. But Gus took a different route. He went back home and didn't realize, I don't want to put doors on buses. There was a plant in Mitchell, Indiana, where he was from uh, that that made buses. And he quickly concluded, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Came home and told Betty, his wife, I think I'm going to go, go to uh, Purdue and Betty said, yeah, I was, you know, I figured you'd come to that conclusion sooner or later. So off they went. Hmm. So uh, check my theory on this. I think probably a part of it was that so many of them were just it, it was that military experience that got them in that got them the GI Bill. And I think a majority of the people who joined the military are from the heartland to begin with. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Deke and Gus and uh and you know, and Neil Armstrong, who who also flew in Korea as well, John Glenn, Cooper, Cooper, Gordon Cooper, I think was actually in the infantry in World War II. He was in the Marine Corps. Oh my goodness! That, yeah, yeah, he was not a flyer in World War II. He was actually a marine, a marine. But then uh, it's he and Gus ended up uh, together at uh, the at, at Wright Pat in in the mid fifties when when they were both getting their master's degree in aeronautical engineering. Uh, of course, Gordo was from Oklahoma, but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, these guys, uh, you know, they they defeated fascism uh, and they came home and the government uh, uh, decided in its wisdom to pay these guys back. There was a there was a huge debate about whether the GI Bill should go through a lot of a lot of conservatives thought, well, no, this is a handout. Well, it wasn't a handout. It turns out these guys earned it, and it was one of the greatest investments this country ever made. And of course, built built the most powerful nation on earth, one that had the wherewithal to build machines to go to the moon. Hmm. Just the perfect alignment of a lot of things. Yeah, you know, it's like what Mike Collins always says about uh, you know Neil Armstrong's born in nineteen thirty, Buzz Aldrin's born in nineteen thirty, Mike Collins is born born in nineteen thirty. How lucky can you get? We just came along at at the right time, and you know that that was part of it. That was definitely part of it. So, how did you get interested in you know in in writing, or did, and did you ever have any aspirations to become a pilot yourself? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm in my uh, mid sixties. So when I was a kid, I had my nose pressed against the zenith watching this stuff live. You know, and it was a it's it was a very very inspirational. You know, I think Neil Armstrong always said that he was amazed at how many people would come up to him and say, I was so inspired by what you did. And, you know, I certainly was. So I always had an interest in this and I uh, uh, decided to pursue, well, you know, I studied history, but uh, pers- decided to pursue a career in journalism and specialize in science writing. And uh, so this was always sort of in the back of my mind to, to look for a subject. And the genesis of the book really starts with... Uh, Something, a, a recurring uh, comment uh, that John Young made in, in various venues, I think in Smithsonian Magazine, and again in the documentary In the Shadow of the Moon, where he's with Gus and they're trying to fix the Block 1 Apollo spacecraft. And John Young, according to John Young, he says, Gus, why don't you say something about the wiring here? It's terrible. And according to John Young, Gus Grissom's response was, well, if I say anything, they'll fire me. Mm-hmm. And I I never got a chance to ask John Young what he thought that meant, but I think what it meant was Gus knew damn well there were 10 guys who figured they could fly the crate that the thing came in. So he played the hand that he was dealt, right, this, this, this flawed spacecraft. And I thought about that, that comment, and, you know, I live near Arlington Cemetery and I, you know, I don't want to sound maudlin, but I did go there one day and I saw Gus's grave in section three and Roger Chaffee next to him and Don Isley down a row or two and Jim Irwin from Apollo 15. And I thought, wow, is this all this guy gets? And there and then I decided I was going to do a biography of Gus Grissom and, and try and, um, you know, correct the record on some of the stuff, some of the stuff, well, we can talk about the right stuff later. I'm sure we will. Some of these things uh, that, these misconceptions and myths about Gus Grissom. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, we don't get to the moon without his contributions, this great engineering test pilot who uh, who came out, came from nowhere, earned everything he got. And he's an, he's an example of ordinary people who, when they work hard, can do extraordinary things. And I find that very inspiring. I think that's part of Gus's attraction. Was he, you know, of the Mercury 7, when, when you kind of rank the 
the, the first seven of them. Was he the most likely to have been one of the first three to go into space? Or I always wonder, like, how in the world did they make these decisions on A, selecting the seven of them? You know, apart from the apocryphal stories of what they went through at Lovelace Clinic and so forth. But, right. you know, I was wondering, what is it that NASA saw in him? I, I kind of always think of the first three as sort of kind of almost one in the same. But I'm just, you know, why is it that they stood out over the other four uh, yeah. and being the first? Right. Right. And, you know, when, when Gus looks at the, he gets invited to the Pentagon for this briefing and he looks at the competition and thinks, wow, these guys are really good. This guy, Glenn, what, he just flew cross country and set a world record. And this guy, Alan Shepard, he's landing jet fighters on an aircraft carrier at night. And he figured, well, I'll give it the old college try. And, you know, he, so he goes to Lovelace and he goes through the torture. And, you know, I, I guess that, that part of the right stuff is accurate. You know this attitude among these hyper competitive guys. If if they if these guys can take it, so can I. But I think that Bob Gilruth, uh, the head of the Space Task Group, and these and these other folks, I think they were looking for particular skills. And you know, Shepard is is very self assured, and he's a Navy guy. And, and Glenn, of course, everybody knows him. Hell, he was on Name That Tune, so he's very polished. He's very interested in the details of the Mercury spacecraft. And Gus Grissom's got this very strong engineering background, right? He's, so he, he was an engineering test pilot at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He's he's flying high-performance aircraft, and he's testing. He said he at this point, and this is mid-50s, late-50s, he's testing gadgets. But test, test piloting wasn't what it was when Chuck Yeager was breaking the sound barrier. So he was sort of ready for the change. I think that's why he, you know, he risked his career to uh, accept this invitation to try out for Project Mercury. So he's the engineering test pilot, the guy who's going to do the, the 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 nitty gritty stuff. He's not interested in prestige, and you could certainly make an argument that Shepard and Glenn were. Uh, but you know, as you guys know, in in early '61, Bob Gilruth uh, calls them all into the room, and I think they do this. Uh, peer review vote but he basically says you know the the first three are going to be shepherd grissom and and glenn maybe he didn't say it in that order that's the way it turned out but gus you know shepherd gets the first flight you could sort of understand why the guy was very polished you know gordon gordon cooper i said gus and deke and i look like we had just come off the flight line Whereas these navies get navy guys were you know spit polish and 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 articulate and you know we look like a bunch of hicks but uh, and then the other theory of course is well the president at the time is a is a navy veteran so that probably didn't hurt Shepard's chances of getting the first flight and Glenn is really ticked off that he doesn't get the first flight but Glenn fought like hell to get that first flight didn't get it but ended up probably getting a better flight, right? The first orbital flight by an American. Yeah. So uh, I think Gus is uh, just the fact that he was steady. He, he, he radiated this, this competence, not confidence, but competence that, you know, he, he was thorough. He knew what he had to do and he went about the job. He didn't, he didn't call attention to himself. I I think that Gilruth and, and those guys like that about him because, you know, they were, they were they were doing this stuff by the seat of their pants. They're trying to figure out how do we get somebody into orbit, and 
yeah, they needed guys like Gus Grissom who would do this and, you know, who would, who would get in this thing. I mean, if you see a redstone rocket, you think, wow, these guys have to be a little crazy to get on top of that thing. We forget about that today. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, not guaranteed, that's for sure. Yeah, boy, the risk, unbelievable. But, you know, that's what a test pilot does, right? They try to they try to anticipate as much as they can, eliminate risks. It's none of this uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants stuff. They're trying to figure out every possible scenario so they can bring the ship back alive. And, of course, bringing back your, or bringing back your ship, of course, turned out to be uh, the, one of the defining moments in, in Gus Grissom's career on his first flight, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. I was just reading uh, recently about Jimmy Doolittle, some of the test piloting he did. That, I mean, just amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I imagine getting, uh, I, forget, I don't know, I think it was a B-26, and they figured out how to get that thing off of a carrier. Oh, yeah, bomb, yeah. To bomb Tokyo. I mean, yep. man. And, and basically enough gas to maybe get to China. The great. I actually have, I recall that scene in, in my book, because the guy Van Johnson, who plays one of the pilots, his 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 aircraft, the ruptured duck, is nose down in the water, and he says, "I lost my ship. I lost my ship." And of course, that's I use that as a reference to Gus losing Liberty Bell Seven. The worst thing that can happen to a pilot is losing your ship. So, yeah, coincidentally, I found out later that Jimmy Doolittle's biography has the same. Name is my book, Calculated Risk. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Well, not so nice, but <laughs> I guess well, I'm in good. Yeah, I just... guess I'm in good company. Yeah, right, right. That's the way I try to look at that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, and Jimmy Doodle was an he was an aeronautical engineer too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. His master's degree was basically here's what I think this plane can do, and he'd write it down, and then he'd hop in the plane and try to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess one other th- one thing I, I always think of with Doolittle wasn't he the one that to d- to validate instrument testing he flew like in a blinded cockpit. Yes, he did the first instru- first uh, complete instrument flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's guts. That's that's guts. I'll tell you. So, what are some of the other things that you'd written about? Some specific things that you'd written about before you moved on to Gus Grissom. Well, I had covered the shuttle program, managed to get down for one launch, but uh, primarily I had uh, I spent the last 30 years covering the, uh, the the electronics industry. And of course, there probably would be no electronics industry without Project Apollo, right? The you know the the flight computer and all that stuff with their nouns and verbs that was basically the the framework for for the the iPhones that, that we hold in our hands today, except there was a hell of a lot less processing power and memory. So oh, yes. so yeah, I've been writing about technology for thirty five years, and uh, my old publication EE Times, um, you know, we we covered the valley like a blanket, and then the uh, electronics industry essentially picked up and moved to China. So uh, so between that and just the battering that the media industry was taking uh, earlier in this decade, 
uh, one day the music stopped and I didn't have a seat and I was, I was shown the door after 20 years, but I got a uh, six month severance. And during that period of time, I'd been working on Gus, uh, for a couple of years and I pitched this pitch, the manuscript to Purdue university, Gus's alma mater. And, uh, they ran it. They told me they ran it by Jerry Ross, one of the many hmm. uh, Purdue astronauts. Uh, I think he either holds or did hold the record for the most spacewalks. And Jerry said, "Yeah, I think it's time for to take another look at Gus." So they gave this 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 uh, untried author a shot, which is one of the great things about university presses. And they they approved my uh, proposal. And uh, then I got I, I I really stepped on the gas, and I had I had this this time to focus on writing the book, which I'd been working on for about two or three years before that. So uh, between I guess 2014 and 2016, I finished it, and and it came out in May of 2016. And my goal was to get it out in time for the 50th anniversary of the fire, which was in July or in January 19th of 2017. And uh, the paperback edition came out last fall. So uh, that included uh, an account of what happened at the Cape on the, on the night of the 50th anniversary. Lowell Grissom, Gus's brother, kindly invited me down for that it was a very moving and they opened a, you know, a a permanent display Apollo 1 display at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center which was highly significant because they included two of the hatches and uh, that's I, that was that's significant because people need to see you know what happened and it wasn't all uh, just uh, glorious launches and we went to the moon and brought back rocks uh, there was a lot of sacrifice uh, and and three guys were killed. Uh, a number of other uh, astronauts were killed in uh, training accidents and uh, uh, flights. And of course, the families, particularly the Whites, the Grissoms, and the Chaffees, suffered tremendously. So that's also part of the story. Uh, the families had to cope with this, and basically, uh, they had, they had to figure it out on their own. NASA didn't give them much help. Yeah. So I, I, th those are all things that. I wanted to uh, uh, explore, and because uh, I, I think uh, that that's an important part of it as well. Yeah, the you know I just saw somebody who was asking about um, on a post that I saw recently about about Ed White and whether there's never been an official biography written of Ed. Um, Yep. But I understand there's some issues with the family or something to that effect. I'm not sure if you have any insight into that. I'm curious. Yeah, it's it's complicated. Um Eddie White Jr. is um uh, uh it, it 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 just destroyed these families. But uh, a biography of Ed Ed White would be, I think there would be a, a, a readership for it. He was a, a really a compelling person human being and and uh but luckily they were able to tell part of ed white's story in in the in the neil armstrong biopic last year which i was happy to see i know that uh, 
Bonnie White, uh, Ed White's daughter, has been active uh, in something that I wanted to mention with you folks, and that is that, that there's there's a, a plan in the works for an Apollo 1 memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. And believe it or not, there is not one. There's one for Challenger, there's one for Columbia, but there's not a memorial at, at the cemetery for the Apollo 1 crew. And I know that Bonnie White's involved and Cheryl Chaffee is involved and, and Lowell Grissom is involved as well. And and it's apparently moving along. Uh, they're trying to move the Army bureaucracy. The Army has jurisdiction over Arlington Cemetery to get a design approved and to find a location. And it looks like that location may be in Section 3 where Gus and Roger are buried. So I know that Bonnie's been been working on that, and uh, it's important to the families. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's the least we can do. So that's that's one good part of the story. But uh, it's I know it's been difficult with... Uh, with Eddie White Jr. And, and, and trying to tell his father's story over the years. Right. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Gus Grissom's official biographer, George Leopold. Join us for the continuation of our interview with George on our next podcast. On behalf of my co-hosts, Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.